0: Don't tell anyone I'm free. Don't tell anyone I'm free. Welcome to BST Talk number 19. It's Wednesday, February 22nd, 2006. Tonight on BSD Talk, we're speaking with Brian Tiemann, and so I don't have you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your upcoming book.
1: All right. Hi, I'm Brian Tiemann. I'm uh, the author of FreeBSD Unleashed, or FreeBSD 6 Unleashed, I believe is what the the title of it is on the current version. This is the third edition of FreeBSD Unleashed. The first one I started out in 2001, and this current version, I believe, is going to be one of the first ones to the market that covers FreeBSD 6.0. I don't actually know when the release date is, but I'm supposed to be done with my author review portion of the writing at the sometime in the middle of March, which means that it should be on shelves probably by May.
0: Is this one also co-authored?
1: No, actually this wasn't the first one I've done on my own. Uh, the first two editions were done with the co-author, Michael Urban, but, they, uh, but he's not been available for this edition, so I'm taking over the entire thing this time.
0: I see there's not a lot of books out there that cover the most current versions of FreeBSD. Do you think maybe you could describe some of the most interesting changes in FreeBSD 6 that you might be writing about?
1: One of the things about FreeBSD 6 is that it really doesn't differ very much from the 5.0 series at all, except in the sense that it was about time for them to release a new major version. The things that differ, that make it differ from 5.4, I think is the last version of the 5 series, is it has uh, support for more wireless devices and uh, some file system support that wasn't previously available. So and it's not really – it's nowhere near the same kind of uh, jump in feature set that there was from four to five or certainly from three to four. It's It's—it's actually been one of the most tame ones in a while. Uh, but I think that has more to do with the fact that they finally got the architecture really uh, working in a stable manner and are able to just concentrate on adding fundamental functionality rather than, uh, or things like device drivers and things like uh, file system support, just tuning things up, getting it more – getting things working more according to expectations than uh, having to, to juggle all kinds of uh, uh, file system structures and, and move things all around in the SC directory. It's, it's now uh, that stuff's all behind them. Uh, and so moving from five to six gets you, uh, it, it gets you more into the, um, the modern world of devices whereas with, uh, without having to worry about any kinds of major jumps in your uh, install system.
0: What made you decide to start writing books on FreeBSD, you know, given the, the popularity of different operating systems? FreeBSD definitely seems like one of the smaller players compared to something like Windows. What was your incentive to go with FreeBSD? This
1: is the first book that I wrote, and what got me going on this process was uh, not my idea in the first place. Uh, Michael Urban was actually already on board to do the first version of this book, and he was a user on one of my systems where I was running FreeBSD. And uh, he found that it was too large a project for one person to do alone. And he uh, just looked around and said, "Hey, is this uh, is the system well run enough? Oh, I guess it is. Uh, why don't I talk to the administrators? See if he wants to write half a book." So I hadn't really considered writing any books at all until that time. And but once I once I did, I took over half the book, and that was just the start of a whole bunch of other writing projects, including these the uh, later editions of the same series. So. It wasn't really a conscious decision on my part to say, oh, I want to do FreeBSD, rather than, say, a Linux book or a Windows book. But it had to do with the fact that I was already running FreeBSD on my own system, which would, I'm sure, lead into another question about why was I running FreeBSD on my own system. Sure. <laughs> and uh, that would go back to when I was in college, and FreeBSD 2.21, I think, was the most recent version. And um, I liked the fact that it was mentioned so often as a as a... High-performance uh, web server platform. I mean, the Apache project was and still is FreeBSD-centric. The uh, main developers of Apache are—they are, still mention that for some of the performance modules are primarily listed with FreeBSD parameters, for instance. And th- at the time, of course, you had companies like Yahoo and Walnut Creek City ROM and so on, which were, of course, at the time they're a lot more relevant than they are now, as as far as their uh, what the software they're running goes. When they're all single uh, web servers. They were quite proud of the fact that they were previous D shops. Now, I was running a a web server for a fan website that I was doing in college, LionKing.org. It's not something I've been making a big deal of in my bios in the book, for instance. But it's a site that I've been running for over 10 years now, fan site for Disney's The Lion King. And uh, at the same time, I was I was running not only the website for the content for the, the website itself, but also hosting all kinds of user sites and email and uh, PHP and and everything else that any of the users wanted to do. And I decided that when I wanted to run it on my own server, I had a choice of Linux, which was not even at at 1.0 status at the time, I believe, or had only just recently reached it, or a commercial Unix or FreeBSD. And FreeBSD, when I looked at it, had this interesting uh, floppy disk-based installation process that I thought was really fun. You just download a, a Floppy image and put it in a machine and just let it go. And I, I don't, I don't know if any of the other operating systems had that at the time, but it just, it just really tickled my fancy, and I just stuck with it since then. And also, it, it's turned out that I've been able to use it in a lot of other situations, not just in my public website, but also at work during my day job. I work in a company making bandwidth management devices, and so we have a lab where we have to do a lot of high-intensity uh, traffic management and throw a lot of traffic back and forth over various topologies. And we found that FreeBSD gives us the best balance of flexibility and stability. We've been able to get more, more uh, high-end speed out of the TCP IP stack than we have on comparable Linux machines or other uh, Unixes if we uh, make the right, the right tweaks to the kernel.
0: Now, when you started using FreeBSD, had you already had some Unix experience, or did you kind of dive right into FreeBSD and Unix all at the same time?
1: Well, this was at uh, Caltech. And at the time there, when you got in the, on the student network, it was all of Unix. It was all Suns mostly. And this was in, in the mid-90s. 1994 was when I started, got started with it. And I had never seen Unix before I went to college. But as soon as I got there, various friends started turning me on to how you would work at the uh, Unix command line. How it, here's, how, here's how the Internet is. Here's how it all works. You know, I had, not, I had no experience with the, the network at all. Seeing how how much fun it could be to be on a command line, it was really caught me by surprise because I had I had only had experience with uh, w- with earlier versions of Windows and with uh, with DOS, but seeing how you could start with the same kind of primitive looking interface and do such outstanding things with it as uh, you know email with Pine and news groups with whatever program was popular at the time, and even the the very first web browsers were starting to appear. I remember NCSA Mosaic, which did not support JPEG images. Uh, All it had was uh, was GIFs and uh, XPMs (laughs) that it would show in line. Uh, Everything else, you had to have a helper application. But that was my trial by fire getting into the Unix world. And uh, we had student clusters that ran uh, HP UX and uh, later on some SGI IRX boxes. And those all had their own quirks, but they were set up in some really intensive clustering topologies. The student cluster had uh, had centralized disks on its own remote system somewhere, and all the, all the machines that were in little cubicles everywhere throughout the lab were just terminals that tied into machines that were down in a, in a machine room somewhere in the sub basement. And that whole, that whole idea of sitting down at a machine and having access to the same files that you would have if you sat down at any of the other terminals uh, just made me wonder how I had ever thought that a single desktop PC Had ever made any sense to me. Now, of course, having been out of college for a while, I'm I'm reminding myself of all the different kinds of uh, applications that you'll have for computing, depending on what kind of person you are, what kind of job you do. But at the time, of course, it just seemed like Unix was the one and only way to go about anything if you wanted to get real computing done.
0: And operating a website for 10 years, I'm sure you've uh, had a lot of opportunities to upgrade that machine throughout the process. And a yeah, lot of people well, are a little apprehensive about the complexity of managing Unix when they come from something like a point-and-click world. I do not know how that's been for you, for you know upgrading FreeBSD over the years.
1: Well, it's been several machines. It's not just in the one box, uh, as you might imagine. I mean, over 10 years, I think I've probably gone through about six different uh, hardware platforms and uh, probably at least as many colocation environments Uh, There have been a number of conflagrations regarding how the thing has been hosted, but at each time I've had an opportunity to upgrade the hardware and and go through it again. But I remember that early on installing FreeBSD on a new piece of hardware involved going through a visual hardware configurator where you would go through and and select all the devices that you wanted to have built into the, the default kernel, which usually involved all those ISA devices that would... You'd have to specify their IRQs and their memory addresses. And this was, this was before PCI became popular. And so it, that is almost entirely gone now. The process of, of installing FreeBSD is about a quarter of the effort that it used to be. It's all a single process now. You don't have to do any of that tweaking. So it's actually become almost a, a no-brainer. And a lot, of the, a lot of the things that drew me to FreeBSD in the first place have uh, kind of become obviated over the years. Nowadays, the co-location sites that I've been sticking with even will offer FreeBSD as one of the default installation options that is do to a disk image of it, and they install it. They don't necessarily support it, but it's available just along with the same, the same uh, installation options as three different Linuxes and a couple of Windows installations or FreeBSD. So it's kind of hard to say how I uh, have gone about upgrading from each version to the next, because a number of times I've just gone to a new machine that had a, a totally new version of the operating system on it and I didn't have to worry about upgrading but I've also kept a machine in my garage the house server all this time and it's a uh, I've used it for Windows sharing and for Mac sharing uh, over the network and just uses a backup server if I want to download uh, to uh, keep my my desktop system backed up I just uh, point it at the, at the external server and have it copy all the files to it on a daily or weekly or however long I want to do basis and that machine I've had to keep updated with each new uh, major version and minor version so what I've done with that is I generally will synchronize the sources and do a make world and uh, since that machine is not a live server and does not have as much in the way of uh, data that, I, that cannot be dispensed of I can take the time to do a little bit of tinkering to make sure it works properly so now on a, on a live production server, I don't know that I have the fortitude to really go through a complete make-world process. When you do that, you have to take the thing down to single-user mode, at least if you're doing it properly, and move, move a bunch of files around because they, they usually tend to rejigger the etc. directory uh, and you have to migrate those properly. And, of course, that's not the same. As, as I mentioned earlier, that's not, that's not as much of an issue between fi- uh, FreeBSD 5 and 6, but in previous releases, it certainly has been. They've worked on moving the system to a whole new way of configuring things. So, for instance, now there's the etc. rc.d directory, which has a whole bunch of scripts inside it, all which are standardized for starting and stopping and restarting all of your, your system services. And that didn't even exist before uh, the, the 5.0 release. And upgrading from 4.0 to 5.0 was, a, was far, much, far more than an automated procedure. They have the binary upgrade process, which I've never really trusted, it sort of works. I found that it worked well enough between 5.4 and 6.0, but I do not know that I would recommend going from 4.0 to 5.0 or 4.0 to 6.0 using the binary upgrade because the script that they use, I don't know that it, I don't know that it even possibly could account for all the ways you have you have your your configurations uh, organized. Now, one of the things about FreeBSD that I've really enjoyed that uh, set it apart from other Unix platforms that I've used is that it puts a lot of effort into making sure that every configuration change and every piece of software that you've installed locally is kept inside the user local directory. And uh, every major configuration change you'd normally put in the etc. directory is compartmentalized in a way that you can move from one system to the next and upgrade from one platform to the next. You can just, if you wanted to, you could just back up all your data and move to totally different new hardware and then just restore all the data without having to uh, merge your configurations, which is what I have uh, pretty much concluded is the best way to go about an upgrade. Uh, You just have to back up your data and uh, do a total reinstall from scratch. Of course, it depends on how big a jump it is from one system to the next, but it still is the most foolproof way to do it. And FreeBSD makes it more easy to do so than other systems would, I think.
0: What's your day-to-day operating system on your on your desktop
1: well by day I use a Mac and um, I've, I've done so for about six years now I really enjoyed the Mac OS 10 development experience watching it change from its initial release onto the current one it's just been a really exhilarating experience now part of the reason why I use it is because it has that FreeBSD basis uh, and all a lot of the tools are still are available that I'm used to there being in FreeBSD but also, it's just, it's just the fact that it is a Unix underneath the hood. I have to mention that there is a, uh, there's a site out there that is run by a next, I don't know if I should call them a next head, or what the most uh, flattering description possibly could be, because it's a, it's a really awesome site. The guy's name is Eric Levinez. you've seen his site, it's Levenez.com, and it has a, uh, a scrolling, horizontally-oriented uh, history of Unix that you can print out, I think it's up to about 16 pages by now. And you put it out and just stitch it all together and just put it in a big banner across your wall. And I've done that a number of times. Just updated it every few months. And uh, it's just mesmerizing. Seeing how FreeBSD and Mac OS X have uh, fed into each other over the years is just a really fascinating prospect. But the reason I use a Mac isn't necessarily because of FreeBSD. I mean, I know that's the obvious connection to make, but frankly, what I'm more interested now in is the user experience for desktop users and i really don't think anybody else has put the kind of effort into the user experience that apple has if i had my way about it i would be going into user experience as a as my career path i can of course verify that i have the uh the necessary skill set for that i don't think very many people do even though they might be working in that in the industry but it's it's one of the things that I respect the most about the computing industry these days, being able to think through a user interface and really imagine how a user is going to be able to do it. I've had enough experience trying to explain to people who aren't necessarily computer users how to just get by and the things that we take for granted. we as as experienced computer people are so used to these little quirky things about email and about the web, and we, they just become little nervous twitches that we just do as a matter of of course, we just miss them without thinking about them. But people who aren't computer-oriented, these things just drive them nuts. I certainly can't blame anybody for being intimidated by a computer that makes you have to figure out what to do with uh, all, the, all the porn spam you get in your inbox every day or all the pop-up ads that come up in your browser. I mean, it's, if you're not a, a savvy person about that kind of thing, it just overwhelms you. Even if you put in a feature that tries to mitigate it, you're still... You're still having to deal with knowing how that feature works, or knowing what its limitations are, or its or its risks. There's a a lot of work still to be done in the user experience throughout the computing world. People who are deeply into it, like us, will often think that it's that things hold your hand too much already in the the consumer space kinds of operating systems. But it really is no, just nowhere near where it needs to be. Not where, say, the car industry is. It needs a lot more time to develop and into become just completely entrenched in the human mindset for it really to become, to, to reach that stage. So when I talk about the Mac being my preferred system, it's because I I want to sort of bask in the, the halo effect, as it were, of the, the one of the only companies out there that really puts a lot of dedicated effort into that specific goal.
0: Do you periodically go back to FreeBSD and uh, check out the progress of the GNOME and KDE or Fluxbox or XFCE desktops?
1: On the desktop, I haven't really had the opportunity to do that. I mean, I, I do it for the uh, purposes of, of documenting the system for things like like a new version of, of this book. And I've, I've certainly been pleasantly surprised by a lot of the things that have happened in KDE. Uh, just in the process of writing this book, I found out about the existence of PCBSD, which is the new branch that just came off of, uh, of FreeBSD. It's based around KDE, and it aims to have as uh, transparent a an installation and and usability vector as uh, as any desktop operating system would. It has it has a graphical package management systems for installing software. I mean, KDE itself has things like the, like a keychain manager. This is what I've become used to in uh, my own desktop system, uh, just keeping track of all your passwords and uh, and locking them all up under a global password that's automatically unlocked when you log into the system. These little things are features that I've I've become so dependent on these days that I find that when I, I used to run FreeBSD as my desktop operating system back in the mid nineties when I was in college. Even then with the with the precursors to GNOME, I mean I I was I was one of those guys that tried to make myself believe that enlightenment was really the way to go. At the time, you know, before before it even was at the 1.0 level, and uh, I was running it on a really slow machine, and uh, it just—I don't know—it it made me wonder what what the whole purpose of computing was because it, it was really flashy and beautiful, and uh, you could do things with it that no sane person would really want to do with their software, like oh, you you can have transparency on your terminal windows, but it wasn't really transparency; it just pasted the background image into your. Into your window, and if you if you stacked more than one of them on top of each other, not only would it would it not show you the window behind the current one, it would slow the thing down exponentially with each, with each window you layered on top. So, seeing that that current versions of KDE and and uh, FVWM and just built into the current version of X11 that they have that kind of uh, functionality layered onto it now is is really encouraging. Seeing that there's that this kind of uh, the the idea of compositing your desktop together is not necessarily just a quirk of a uh, a desktop operating system that's designed to look pretty. It's actually a really useful thing no matter what level computer user you are. I found that you know using using macOS 10, I found that there is always a rationale behind every no matter how flashy some effect is. There's always some some rationale for it, whether it's Uh, plausible or not is another question but for instance if you try to minimize a window and you see that genie effect that puts it into the dock uh, it it just looks like eye candy but there's really a reason for it it tells you where the thing went that kind of thing can't really exist without the kind of compositing that's available in the quartz layer mac os 10 and seeing that same kind of technology making its way into the x11 world is a great encouragement because it means the same kinds of user interface uh, efforts are not so alien to the system that that they once were. It means that you can you can eventually have whole in- user interface guidelines. Like I saw that GNOME has its own user interface guidelines, and so does KDE. Using the same kinds of principles that you expect to find in, in the Mac world or in the Windows world to a lesser extent, there is really a, a future to be to be uh, expected in real user user applications on the Unix side as well. and especially for people who want to uh, have multi platform applications that can be ported easily from one platform to the next without having to worry about whether major features are going to be are, are going to be have to be dropped or reimagined just to work on a system with fewer uh, go fast features.
0: I hope sometime in the future that uh, you'll be wooed back to FreeBSD on the desktop. <laughs> Yeah, interesting. I well, can certainly
1: be sure that I'm not planning on uh, on moving away from it as my as my server operating system. Yes.
0: You know, I don't think anyone would argue that they've done a wonderful job with their focus on the server. Mm-hmm. And you know, I guess you know, there's just a lot of players outside of the FreeBSD team that are responsible for the graphical user interface side of things. Right. So it's not quite in their uh, in their core system.
1: Yeah. Well, people have different. Uh, different foci. I mean, the, these guys are, are hardcore server application people and they want to make sure that the platform is rock-solid. It's, it's not so much about new applications on the Unix side as it is about making sure the existing applications run completely reliably
0: at least when it comes to the desktop, every hardcore Unix person knows that the best graphical user interface is Emacs, right? <laughs> of course. <laughs> and it's your web
1: browser, and it's That's your email right. program, and it's everything you want.
0: <laughs> who needs a mouse <laughs> you've got your <laughs> alt and your control keys? Yeah,
1: I, I miss those old HP keyboards with their mysterious little diamond keys and things.
0: So if people want to pick up your book, it's uh, being published by SAMS, correct?
1: Right, it's uh, the SAMS Publishing. They're the They're the ones who do the... The Unleashed series—it's the the ones with the reddish orange covers and the sort of explosion-looking thing—and also the In a Snap series and the How to Do Everything with series. It's, I've actually got books in several of those of those series. I have—I uh, did a, a Teach Yourself FreeBSD in 24 Hours book a few years ago, along with Michael Urban. But it's FreeBSD Unleashed, FreeBSD 6.0 Unleashed—I think is what it was going to be called—or or just FreeBSD 6 Unleashed. I don't believe they've. Uh, really settled on the title yet but that's what going that's the series it's going to be in
0: great well we'll look for it on the bookshelves and uh, i'd like to thank you very much for speaking with me today
1: oh it was was a pleasure and And i hope i haven't bored everybody's hears with my long windedness this is the first time i've really done a podcast interview and only the second time i've done any interview at all
0: (laughs) what's nice about podcasts is that their their whole design is informal so oh yes the, the design of this podcast is people talking about BSD. So thank you very much for your time. And uh, well, maybe we'll catch up with you again after the book is released.
1: Oh, yes. I'm sure I'll, I'll be uh, on vacation in Tahiti or something with all my riches.
0: That's right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. If you'd like to leave comments on the website, you can do so at bsdtalk.blogspot.com. Or if you'd like to send me an email, you can send an email to bitgeist at yahoo.com. That's B-I-T-G-E-I-S-T at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening.